Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 22 Q&A. You ready for some Q&A, Jay? I am ready, finally. We've been wanting to do this for a while, but we needed to get a certain number of uh, questions, and um, we didn't get as many as we wanted to, but we have enough now, so we could go ahead and do it. Yeah, the um, they were slowly starting to come in, and then we've seen some common themes, and we consolidate them, so they're not specifically from any one person. Sometimes they're because someone may have asked the same question different ways. So we combine them together so we can answer those questions for you. Uh, and once mm -hmm. you run through the questions, we will spend some time going through and answering some questions uh, and being helpful for the audience here. So yep. first things first, though, we got to thank a sponsor of the show. I know. Linode. Yes. Yep. And Linode is awesome. And you're using Linode if you ever go on our website because, you know, like I've mentioned before, it's you know, being hosted by Linode. And Linode is a sponsor of this particular podcast as well as my YouTube channel because they're awesome. Their service is awesome. And uh, we handpick our sponsors here. So, you know, it's not to be taken lightly that we chose Linode. They're easy to use. They have a great dashboard. They have all kinds of Linux distros that you can spin up, even Arch Linux, which is crazy, crazy awesome. And one-click apps, it's a really awesome service. Yes. Now, our website did go down, and I want to highlight a problem with Linode yep. on this one, and that's if you give bad commands, you get bad right. results. Turns out it was a typo. So, <laughs> I mean, it, they don't just fuzzy figure out what we yeah. meant. They actually read the command as it was typed. <laughs> it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So yeah. I, this is one of those situations where, you know, sometimes when we fix something, we're like, how did we fix it exactly? Because we tried a bunch of things and worked, but this is... It's very clear what fixed it, but the bigger question is, how did it ever work? I had a typo in the FS tab file. How did it ever mount that volume? How could it have ever mounted that volume when there's a typo in the FS tab file? It's been rebooting, you know, when it's updating and things like that. It's been fine, but one day, nope, doesn't even mount the volume anymore. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, that's wrong. Okay, um, how did it ever work? So, um, yeah. We dodged a yeah. bullet on that one. So it, it did it, go down. That was why it was my fault. I take full responsibility for that. Yeah. So we, we just have to admit the problem with computers is they do exactly what we tell them to. That's really <laughs> what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes we think we're telling them to do something, but what we're ah. actually telling them is not that. They are much more concise than us. <laughs> yep. So Vulcan that's uh, a thank you, Linode offer code down below if you want to get signed up for it. But I wanted to address though, because I got tagged in Twitter, posted in forums. Apparently, I that's actually makes me feel good that people let me know the site's going down. We're not bothered by it at all. Um, it was something we were aware of as well, but it's cool. That means people are actually looking because that's actually the worst fear. Yeah. Something goes down and nobody notices. <laughs> yeah, you know what's weird though is that there's a Nagios check for pretty much everything on the server, so I'm notified when there's a problem. But there's not really a great way in Nagios to tell if a volume is mounted or not. Because if you're checking the free, free disk space, for example, and it's, it's not mounted, it's just checking the disk space in that folder it would have been mounted in, which is going to report the same as the root file system if it's not mounted. So um, what I need to do is just find a custom plugin. But it shouldn't happen anymore anyway. But it's just one of those things where you you know have checks installed and you think everything is good oh that one thing that it's not checking for is the thing that happened so yeah you know it might be um and this is actually kind of fun so this is me and jay in real time discussing a couple ideas that i didn't think about but till right now i was just doing a video that'll be released uh well i actually did release this video on benchmarking and i brought up the tool i just didn't dive deep into it it's just an easy way to test for this exact thing um, mm -hmm. It's called IO ping and it pings IO devices to give you their latency on the system. I was doing that to highlight when you're trying to troubleshoot IO problems, especially in benchmarking, you can use IO ping to determine the latency of the device and you can ping it on a schedule and it will either stop responding altogether or you can IO ping and just watch it slowly, re you know, change response times. Um, I wonder if there's a way to integrate that into Nagios where you tell IO ping mm -hmm. if the result is, well, nothing, um, then, yeah. then uh, fire off a trigger. Work. That would probably work. I think the easier way to do it, because one of the cool things about Nagios is that at the end of the day, it's looking for a return code. So if you're doing like a, you know, if directory exists, return whatever. Okay. And that's all you need to do. So if, if there's like a, so a subfolder inside the volume, you could just say, does this folder exist? If it's not mounted, it won't exist. It'll return something other than zero and it'll flag Nagios. Um, but that might be another way to do it too. So one or the other will probably be uh, how I uh, go about that. Right. All right. On to the Q&A. 
What is yeah. the first thing? And I think this is one you wanted to talk about because you've been yep. working on this uh, issue more so than me. I This is something yep. I should do, and that's power management. Yes, I have been working on this for a while. And there's two really important things, like one of which I was doing was I was shutting down my servers when I'm not using them because if everyone in the house is sleeping, who cares if Plex is down? Why, why pay for the power for that if we're not using that? Um, for some reason, I stopped doing that. But the other day, I think about a week ago, I'm like, you know, my power bill is like $470. I think it's time to revisit shutting down the servers that, you know, when they're not being used. But even though the problem probably isn't the servers, it's most likely an HVAC problem. We're not going to get into that. But before I get into shutting down servers, there's something probably we should look at first before we go down that route. And part of that is making you know, really good purchase decisions because a lot of people will do this. And I did this when I first started with HomeLab a long time ago. You go on eBay, you look for off-lease servers, right? PowerEdge or whatever um, HP's server is. Um, and there's other models, Supermicro and things like that. And you find a server and you look at it and like, man, that's got some good specs. And usually they could be surprisingly cheap. So before COVID, I think you could get a pretty decent virtualization host, you know, an actual business server that's, of course, you know, somewhere between eight and 10 years old, but still plenty fast for home lab for like 100 or $150. And you're like, yes, this is great. It's everything I need. It has the right number of cores, right amount of RAM. It's perfect. So you buy it. And um, what most people don't do, and what I also didn't do, is look at the total power draw of the CPU that you're buying. Because some of those Xeon processors can use a lot of power, and some of them use very little because there's L-series Xeon processors as well. And if you go with that, then it's going to use considerably less power. So making an intelligent decision when you buy it is important. Now, that leads to another lesson that I learned, too, because, of course, I bought some Xeon processors that are very power-hungry um, when I first started. And what I found was that you can easily replace the CPU. They're very cheap. I was shocked by this. I had three PowerEdge servers. Each one had two CPUs, uh, CPU um, sockets in them. So six CPUs needed to be replaced. And I bought the CPU for about $40 or $50 on eBay, and I got 10 of them. <laughs> I got 10 Xeon processors or something like that for $40 or $50. Like they're practically giving them away. And they were the L-series Xeon processors. And it j just so happens that all my servers use the same type of CPU. So I replaced all the CPUs with the L-series lower-powered CPUs. That really helped out a lot. Also, going into the BIOS settings, by default, a lot of these are going to run like full power all the time. Um, I mean, you could argue that you might need that if you're doing virtualization, but um, I don't really see a good reason for that in, in home lab. I mean, do you want your servers to sound like a turbine engine like all the time? <laughs> so you could tune that down, kind of make it more on-demand for CPU scaling. Um, you can adjust the fans. So those are the kinds of things that you should do first, like make the right decisions about power. If you are if you haven't bought something yet, look at the total power draw. Disable any components you're not using. Like if you're never going to use the onboard NIC, it probably won't save that much power. But you may as well turn it off if you're not using it. And anything else for that matter, if there's add-in cards that you're never going to use, like there's a you know RAID controller, you're, you're not using that, just take it out. Um, that'll really go a long way. Now, if you do that and you still want to save some power, you could consider having the servers power down when you're not using them. And this is where the opinions in the audience are going to be very divisive. Some people are going to say you should never do that. Servers are supposed to be on all the time. Leave them on all the time. And other people like me are like, well, if I'm going to save five bucks, I may as well, right? I'm not using it. So why have it um, soaking up power? So um, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this, because I've discovered a few additional things recently when I decided to go back and have my servers power down. Um, so the idea is basically setting up a cron job that shuts the servers off, maybe something like midnight, 1 a.m. You're probably not going to be using them. And then having something like um, a Raspberry Pi to issue a wake on LAN command to your servers to um, get them to power on. Now, a lot of people in the audience know this. Tom helped me upgrade to 10 gig recently. And I spent a couple of hours trying to fight with this. And I'm like, why won't this work? Like wake on LAN does not wake the servers up. It doesn't make any sense. Everything is configured. What's going on? So... I don't know if you've experienced this, but you're like Googling a lot and you can't find an answer. And then you just adjust your search terms just the right way. And you find this one article that explains everything. It's like the only article that exists. Um, I landed on Intel's page 
And what it said basically was that we don't support Wake on LAN with any of our 10 gig cards. Yeah. Like so oh. it becomes, you kind of have to set the Wake on LAN on one of the one gig cards that are on the system as well. Right. Even if you're not using it for networking, as long as, you know, maybe your primary networking, but you're using it in order to do the Wake on LAN, it's kind of an option yep. there. Well, yeah, that's true. So there's two different options that I found. Um, the first one didn't work out, but it was possible. So I go in the BIOS for my servers, and there's an automatic power on on a scheduled time thing that you can set up. You can set the hour and the minute, it, and it'll just turn itself on. So at first, I'm like, there we go. You know, there's the there's a solution. But I didn't want to do that because, of course, you know, the time zone's not going to match in the server versus the actual time zone. So I have to do, like, some math to make sure that I'm turning it on at the right time. And then that also means um, daylight savings, you know, when that's going on, I have to go in and change it. And I don't really want to change anything. I want to kind of set it and forget it. So that ruled that out for me. I didn't want to do that. So um, some people may know this and some people may not. So um, IPMI, um, a lot of these servers have that. It's like an IKVM. You can log in uh, via web browser, the username and password. You can get a console. So you can uh, sign in, view what's on the screen. You can power on the server, power it off. It's really cool. And every super micro server I've ever seen has this, including mine. Um, but that wasn't an option because I didn't want to like log in in the morning and remember to hit the power button because that kind of defeats the purpose of automation. But what I found out is that IPMI tool, which is a command line interface, a command line utility you could just install, what that'll allow you to do is interact with IPMI without a web browser. You could just write a bash script. So what I ended up doing was just in a cron on a Raspberry Pi, it's just going to execute this script. It's going to execute the IPMI tool command. It's something like chassis power on, if I remember correctly. You give it the IP address of the server, um, specifically the IPMI IP address, and it'll just turn it on. So to make it more intelligent, I, you know, of course, want TrueNAS to start first. It's the storage server. It needs to be on first, and then it'll sleep five minutes. It'll power on the um, Proxmox servers. Now, that led into another problem because I have two servers for Proxmox in a cluster. So if one server starts before the other, you don't have quorum. The, none of the VMs on either server will start. You have to go in and start them uh, manually. So what I did was I just added a couple minute delay for all the VMs before they try to start, because by then, both of those servers will be up and running. And then the final thing I had to do was adjust Nagios to not care about certain servers when they're down, because they're supposed to be down. So that's a lot of work. Now, I'm not really sure what the power savings are going to be, um, but I guess <laughs> we'll find out in a month. And some people out there are very um, oppositional to ideas like this because, you know, like I said, they'll be like, yeah, your server's supposed to be on all the time and you're just introducing, you know, unnecessary wear into your hard drives, which I don't personally agree with. I think it's really not as bad as people make it out to be. And I was setting my servers to shut off for years and no problem. So um, you as the home lab person, you get to... Um, manage this for yourself do you yeah. want them to shut and, off and that's up to you and something uh i see the digital life in the chat there and something uh, he's correct that christian mentioned was that if you're virtualizing your firewall then this becomes something you don't want to do right. um, i'm not the biggest on virtualizing firewalls and there's another one of the cost savings someone was just posting in my forums today about using like an r710 for pf sense right away i'm like that's a lot wow. of power to be yep. used dedicated to pf sense i mean i don't know the use case they have for it in terms of maybe they need that much power but a lot of times i've seen people find old servers and go hey i can run this on pf sense but now you're talking about something that's going to draw 100 plus watts just to be your firewall um when it yep. comes to some of the firewalls so i've mentioned if you leave them on a lot uh, which ideally you don't leave your firewall on all the time and maybe you just don't need access to plex but that's where some of those uh ARM-based processors can be really handy for some of those mm -hmm. firewalls, especially like the SG3100 by NetGate's a good example of it. But there's other firewalls based on ARM. ARM is generally a very efficient platform to build that on and pretty ideal for some of the firewalls. But even though if you're just using some of the more modern, some of the Protect Tele boxes, um, those are nice, compact, fanless, quiet, and generally lower power. Running, it on a, running your firewall on an old server, it's a fun experiment. If you don't need the kind of horsepower that that provides, then you probably are going to eat up the power bill more so than you'd like to. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, those are great points. Uh, in addition to that, um, depending on where you live, you're going to care more or less depending yeah. on that. Because if you're living in a place that has really expensive energy costs, like I think Hawaii is one of them, if I'm not mistaken, then um, you're really trying to you know get these things to not use power because it's going to saturate your bill. But other places... 
power so cheap that, you know, at most you're shutting down your servers, you might save five bucks or something yeah. over the year. Um, that can really vary from one person to the other. So I know, you know, some people are really against the idea. Just keep in mind too, that um, if you're against the idea, it's probably because you live in an area where power isn't that expensive. So you're free to really not care. And other yeah. people, you know, they're squeezing all this. Um, or, or you're like my friend who has sell, uh, solar panels and actually creates surplus energy. So <laughs> I have already started looking into that. It was, it's yeah. too expensive right now, but I, uh, my nephew works for a company that sells those things. And okay. um, when it gets down enough, I am going to try to solar power my entire home lab. I think that'd be so fun. That would be pretty cool. So yep. hopefully that clears up some of the power. It is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it is something to consider. And it's not just power, as Jay was pointing out last night. And today is a heat wave here in the Michigan area. Uh, heat is directly correlated to this. So the more things you have on all the time, it's not just the power draw. It is the heat they generate that then heat has to be removed. Of course, if you're in a cooler climate um, or in the winter, maybe you want to leave the servers on because you're going to warm up the house. And so there's that's one yeah. more little factor to throw in there is the heat dissipation, something to consider. So that's a real <laughs> consideration because if it ever looks like I'm sweating in some of my videos, it's actually the case because it gets super hot in the studio when I have the door closed and I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, yeah, the struggle is real. Yeah, the struggle is real. So, <laughs> yeah. Now, ready for the next question? Yep. So this was an interesting one and they, they in more than one person worded this. It says, any chance we bring another guest occasionally? The answer is yes. And someone added on to that. Uh, can we spotlight Michigan YouTubers? Well, I don't know besides Jay that many people that are into YouTube, into tech right. and in Michigan. Uh, the only other tech YouTuber specifically in tech that I know in Michigan, I don't actually know uh, him, but I know of him is Detroit Borg. He's got, uh, he's a, Apple it does a lot of Apple and high-end device uh, reviews and things like that. But outside of the home lab, this is, I, I don't have any contact with him. Also, he's not doing what me and Jay do. When you narrow it down to what me and Jay do, the guest list gets a little bit smaller because we are people who both work in the industry, talk about these things. And uh, But yeah, we do plan on having more guests. We've talked to a few other yep. people. So that's, that's something we absolutely plan on doing out in the future. So if you are someone uh, who has a YouTube account, if you're a content creator in general, and yep. like we had, um, oh boy, uh, Badger. Uh, the, yeah, yep, yep. Alex. Yeah, he was on here. Yep, Alex, uh, yep, doing review. So absolutely, we do plan to, in the future to have more guests. We've had Wendell on here, so I mean, yep. he's uh, Wendell's right in our right in our wheelhouse of things. So yeah, if someone's relevant and a content creator and uh, wants to reach out to us, absolutely, we we plan on, and it's part of the future of this podcast is having more guests on. Yeah, I think uh, I think something to keep in mind is that Tom and I we know lots of people, we talk to lots of people, but for the podcast, the individual we bring on has to be able to talk about you know, home lab. And for some people, they could be system administrators, Linux people, but they might not be home lab people. Some people that I've asked will say, well, I don't really have a home lab. I have all this stuff at work and I have full control over it. So I don't really need to do any of that. And, you know, we could argue whether you should or shouldn't do it anyway, but um, that kind of thins the the number out. I mean, we also have like Michael Lucas, for example, that I thought about reaching out to. Yes. But the thing is, um, He's a very awesome system administrator. Does he have a home lab? Probably. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But if he doesn't, then, you know, like, I don't yeah. know if we could have a reason to get him on. But even if we don't, we'll have him on our respective YouTube channels for a different yeah. reason. Anyway. And I've had so. Michael and I actually am working on uh, a video. It's it's long. It's going to take a little while before we get it out. But uh, me and Michael are going to dive into the history of FreeBSD. So. Yep. He has a wealth of knowledge in the BSD community, and he's a pretty well-known author for a lot of different things. And we've recommended and mentioned his books on here. Matter of fact, Wendell, when the episode we had Wendell, we we gave a shout out to some of the Michael Lucas books. They're great if you're uh, yep. a learning sysadmin. He's got some ones on SSH and a lot of other yep. topics, uh, ZFS, and common things we've talked about here, but uh, very yep. knowledgeable. His SSH book, I consider a must read. Absolutely. It's, it's the best SSH book I've ever read. I don't know if there's many other books just about SSH, but it's literally like it's going to yeah. teach you everything you need to know in one shot. It's it's just amazing. Right. Um. All right. Next is what do you suggest for KVM solutions for a home lab? This is this is kind of a fun one because there's a yeah. few different options. There's like the tiny pilot, uh, Pi KVM. There are always finding surplus things on eBay. That's the, uh, 
that's going to be one of those mm -hmm. options if you need a lot of KVMs. Uh, the good news is a lot of boards have IP mileage. Jay mentioned those are the low hanging fruit solutions and ones that are very easy to recommend. The downside is if your budget doesn't allow for at least a slightly more modern server, you'll end up stuck in Java hell of oh, the way the IP KVMs worked on some of the old right. uh, systems. They use different Java downloaders and things like that. Uh, we and Jay have both reviewed the Pi KVM, and then I gave mine away uh, to a lucky person that watches my blog Thursday. But that is um, definitely a cool little option. It, yeah. The Tiny Pilot and the Pi KVM. So they're both yeah. based on uh, Raspberry Pis to be able to do that. Um, but that's and you can build your own too. Yeah, and you can build your own too. Yeah. Um, there, there's also the iDRAC, but that's also a rabbit hole because the newer ones, as I understand it, will use HTML5. And that's what you're looking for. It used to be yeah. Java for all these, and it's HTML5 now. So if your server supports an iDRAC, and you can get that iDRAC on eBay, and they're usually pretty cheap, and it's one that supports HTML5, and it's compatible with your server, you can go ahead and do that. I haven't used it myself, but I have um, have seen that there's a Docker container out there somewhere I don't know if it still exists now. This is, it was a few years ago, but someone created a Docker container that can allegedly um, connect to a Java um, interface for those that are on Java and just show the console. So you don't have to install Java on your host system. You can just have it, you just run the container only when you want to use it, and then you just stop it when you're done. Um, that's an option. I kind of find that this can be a little frustrating because if you look at the prices for some of these enterprise iKVMs, the hardware KVMs that are rack mountable, um, they can cost a lot of money. And some of them might be bound to licensing that you have to figure out a way around. And it's unbelievable how expensive these things are. So the um, tiny pilot, can't remember what the cost was. Some people might think it's a little up there. I don't mind paying it because I'm supporting a really awesome person that's that's making that available. But then when you look at the used ones on eBay, all of a sudden, that tiny pilot doesn't seem so expensive anymore. So um, you have to kind of weigh the pros and the cons. But if your server already has an HTML5 like iDRAC or IPMI, just use that because you already have it. Just use that. Check that first. And, and if not, try one of the Pi solutions. I think you could build your own, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, yeah, all, all the Pi projects do list the parts, so you can order okay. parts yourself. Um, also, each of the respective Pi, uh, Pi KVM projects both have a list, and I think the lists are probably similar, if not the same, of KVMs you can chain them to. And what I mean by that is, because a lot of people want to be able to do this you know, somewhat remotely, that's where the Pi KVM comes in, but then mm -hmm. maybe you don't want to buy five Pi KVMs, but you'd like to buy a switch, a KVM switch that has several adapters on it. And we did some testing on this here at the office to confirm it worked with at least the model they said. And what it does is if you take one of those cheap, IO gear type of KVMs, like the basic ones that switch between two or three computers or four computers, um, and then tie the Pi KVM to that, You, we were able to send the control keys. But this is not universal. That's why they've been working on a list on their project pages of which ones to get. And the cool thing is those cheap KVMs, the non, in, you know, I would say non-enterprise ones are really cheap. But then you combine them with the IP uh, abilities of a Pi KVM. Now you have a cool thing where you have remote management, you have multiple server management, and you have it at a reasonable price. Because if you go straight to buying, like Jason, one of those used uh, commercial ones, it can be kind of expensive. And it's yeah. also, we've because we had one, we wanted a second one here at the office. And I can't remember the, the brand we had. It's years old and it's only VGA, so I wouldn't recommend it. But one of the problems we had when we got one from eBay, uh, it was way cheaper than new. It was like one-tenth the price, but it was blurry. And they only had mm -hmm. one. And we turns out the caps were bad on it. So we actually ended up soldering new capacitors inside of it. So be prepared because you got to remember these things, if they were in a server rack, were probably on from the day they were installed and turned off and sold on eBay. So they've been on for years. And if they weren't of the highest quality or have bad caps in them, um, take that for what it's worth. Just something to think about yep. when you're on there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Another thing too about the Tiny Pilot, I'm not sure if these features have landed yet, but the um, individual, I wish I remembered his name. Anyway, he reached out to me and let me know that the Tiny Pilot is getting uh, boot from ISO support. So you could boot your server with an ISO image and actually install an OS yep. right from the Tiny Pilot. But then also they're coming out with a um, power over Ethernet version of it too. Yeah. 
So there's well, more I, features I, coming out. Yeah. And like I said, and someone pointed out that one of the projects was, uh, is it Pi KVM? There's Tiny Pilot and Pi KVM. They're two, mm-hmm. if you want to call them competing, they're both open source projects. Um, right. The Tiny Pilot one has like a business model where you can pay for support. But anyways, someone pointed out one of those has the uh, Kickstarter that kicked off today. So check out both of those projects. They're, they're both valid. There's both some uh, pros and cons of each of them. And uh, it's, hey, why not? It's fun to play with. I mean, any Raspberry Pi project I'm a fan of. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many. There's there, there. We could just have a whole podcast about Raspberry Pis, and we're not, and I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. saying we're going to do that because I got to oh, be good already. Word. But I mean, like a whole like like ongoing oh, yeah. series about them. But um, we do like enough yeah. content about those. I think we have that covered. So yep, yep. All right. Next one. Now, this is something a few people have asked for, and it says, "Love the show." In future episodes, could you show more demonstrations of images of the things you're talking about rather than just displaying them in chat? Demonstrating tools would be awesome. One of the things we've done is everything we've covered. Me and Jay reference the videos we've already done on these. Mm-hmm. So, doing a live stream and live demonstration is substantially harder. And as we re- do record the show live, uh, is substantially harder than the concise edited cut down and me and jay will both tell you we spend a lot of time editing so when you think me and jay are really good at something no we've just edited it to make us look good just fold us yep. closer here yep. but it's also edited to make it brief to make it concise to teach you something so we always reference the videos we're talking about so when we did a video about proxmox jay has videos on proxmox we did yep. a video about xcpng i have an entire series on xcpng as well and almost each one of these projects we've talked about we always link to the videos we reference or the playlist we references on there so you won't find those in here because this is targeted as an audio format podcast we host it on youtube out of absolute convenience and it allows easy interaction for a live audience it's got all the right things there but it's then taken the audio stripped out we use a tool called Streamyard to actually uh stream this to youtube and then another stream is recorded uh Ultimately, the goal is to have an easy-to-do podcast. So if we started doing a bunch of visuals in here, this would leave out those who say, hey, I love listening to this in the car while I'm driving or you know, right. while I'm doing something else in my headphones because that would not translate. So that's why we reference it, and it's uh, and that's why all the videos in our show notes. Yep, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's absolutely the case. And I think as long as, you know, I, I try to train myself, so as long as I keep this up, um, you know, describing to what people what it is I'm talking about. So when I first mentioned IPMI, I'm, I'm going to let you guys know for those that don't already know what it actually is, what it does, what the goal of it is. You can get a picture in your head of logging into a web console and seeing a desktop in your browser. And if that general picture you have in your head is, is probably correct. So, and like Tom said, we have all kinds of videos. So if there's something we're talking about and for some reason we don't have a video on it, we're probably mentioning it because we're already working on creating the video for it. So yeah. uh, just keep your eye on our channels. Yep. All right. Now, this isn't a really easy one. Oh, what yeah. do you prefer for diagramming? Uh, draw IO or MS video? You and have to add draw.io. <laughs> yeah, draw.io. Um, and they've actually changed it to diagrams.net as they bought an adjacent domain. So it's the same uh, thing. Um, they, they actually have a story of why they did it. Apparently, there's some controversy about the .io uh, TLD. So they're worried if anything ever happened, they wanted to have a backup plan. So they own diagrams.net, but both works as of right now, both work oh, fine. Okay. Yeah. They, they have a little article on that. Um, I've done a video of getting started with it. It is a wonderful drawing utility. It has some amazing features that allow you to not only embed things, but you can embed things that you create in it as a PNG and then sub embed within that, the actual data that created it that means you can open a PNG that was created with it that had the sub data and pull it back out into the drawing program, edit it, and re-export it as a PNG with it. I mean, I went far into the, I think it's kind of a little bit longer of a tutorial because there's a lot to talk about. And mm-hmm. since I did that video uh, maybe about a year ago, they've added even more things. They've added um, like animation flows and all kinds of neat stuff. So Draw.io, one, it's free, by the way. That's It's open source. It's free. Um, I have talked to a couple people and developers. I'm hoping because it has its own scripting language. It's all well documented for how you generate it of building some plugins. And this person specifically is working in PowerShell documentation tools to export in the language that it is. So you can auto generate network maps from it or different wow. uh, domain maps. So in, there's a lot of potential for that. And they encourage people to like, that's why they document so well that they can take external inputs and build things with it. So huge fan of draw.io, uh, mm-hmm. not a fan. I mean, I used Visio years and years ago and, uh, 
I'm just not interested in using it anymore. I mean, yeah, it exists. It's kind of like it works so well. It does so many things right. and it's free and it's easy enough because it's also web-based is you can run it as an application or web-based. The web-based one will allow you to share and edit with someone who doesn't need to sign in or anything. You can actually create a link on the draw.io or diagrams.net site, send them the link with it embedded and have them open and start editing the same thing. Not simultaneously. I don't think it does shared editing, but uh, either way, you can get someone else working with it without them having to even load an application. Yeah. Is it still the case that Visio is like an app only? There's, is there a, like an online version now? I'm, I'm not aware of for Visio, but I could be wrong. I don't keep up with the Microsoft will. I know there's license fees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing, because I know in the past I, I didn't use Visio because I'm not trying to run a Windows VM just to create a diagram. And with draw .io, excuse me, draw.io being in a browser, it's like it doesn't really matter what OS you're using. Just open your browser, go to the site and start doing it. So um, for me, that I don't know if that's still the case now that Visio was not in a, in a web version, but... Um, that was absolutely the reason why I started with it. And that's why I still use it now. So, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Hopefully that answers that one. And this one's going to be a little bit of a discussion, but I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible. And mm -hmm. that is the protection against ransomware. Now I have some good news and they just not saying you're immune, but they don't target home users quite is heavily. They usually uh, just target them with some drive-by BS type things is what I can describe it. Um, the As I do videos where we talk about threat and persistence, and I have an upcoming webinar I'll be doing with Huntress diving deep into how threat actors pick a target and gain persistence within a target. And it's a very focused and target act because they dive into financials. They know how much money they have. The other side of it is for all the efforts they put into it, home users are, they're just hoping we'll click on something and uh, will get infected, but the ransoms are usually much lower and less effort has been put into it because they don't always expect home users to have the ability to pay. But I'm not saying you have a zero level threat. So there are some things you need to do. Backups, 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 always have backups. Um, we just mm -hmm. did a, our last one was about Synology and Synology's yep. uh, got a backup tool on there, but whatever backup tool you have, make sure you have it, make sure those backups are kept secure and separate from you as the user. So the username and password you may log in with on your computer should not be the same as the username and password you log in with for your backup. An example for me, I have my username and password for my Synology. Then I have the admin user and password for my Synology. And I have them separated. That way there's a limited amount of functions I can do with my day-to-day -day user and then only log in admin as needed. You can do this on each of your computers. Um, that you got to keep this separation of privilege and separation of where those backups are stored. The next thing is going to be, especially I'm assuming Windows, because that's where the ransomware is mostly targeted with few exceptions for things like when people... Uh, publicly exposed things. We'll get to that second. Uh, we'll talk about that. But most part, I'm assuming you're running Windows. The antivirus that comes with Windows is actually pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. It's better than a lot of people realize. Microsoft used to be the joke of the antivirus, uh, especially the free ones. And it's the tables have really turned. Microsoft put a lot of effort into going, hey, let's make this a little better, which kind of shocked me. They've they've really stepped their game up. So it's actually a pretty solid antivirus. Um, I don't know all the consumer ones. There's a lot of them out there. So if you have an opinion right. on another one, I I don't know. Do you, you probably don't keep up with that either, too, do you, Jay? No, I mean, honestly, I think antivirus nowadays isn't nearly as important as it used to be because at the end of the day, it's um, what you use your computer for and whether or not you're following best practices. Are you clicking on random links and emails? Are you making good decisions? Now, obviously, if you have the right vulnerability that re that allows remote code execution, that could still happen. But at the end of the day, you have images for your machines. You could get them back up and running. You have a uh, version to backup so you can get your data back. That, to me, is more important to focus on than antivirus because antivirus is kind of like almost like it's insurance about what could happen. And you're hoping that if something happens that your antivirus will catch you doing something you shouldn't have done or maybe yeah. um, by mistake. It's almost like insurance, like uh, like medical insurance, but um, I mean, hey, I, I use medical insurance because medical insurance doesn't want to cover anything, right? So like sometimes antivirus is, is just like 50 or 60% effective anyway. So 
at the end of the day, that time and effort you're putting into that, you could probably just put more time into your backup um, routine yeah. and your images and things, which is probably I, better anyway. I mean, for most home users, I, I'm still just going to go with Windows Defender. I don't even see anyone in the chat suggesting anything otherwise. Um, Windows yep. Defender still... It, it for like I said, if you go look at the scores on it uh, by some of the AV testing, it ranks up there with a lot of the other ones. Um, and usually the only time they ding it is uh, slightly high false positives. I was reading one of the reports on it. I'm like, yeah, slightly high false positives is better than let something through. Like the detection rates were the right. same as some of the other antivirus, but a couple more false positives, which false positives, don't get me wrong. They're annoying when you are trying to load a game and you go into a panic attack going, why is Defender flagging this game file? Why does it not like the image files in here? Um, then that's more of an annoyance than likelihood of ransomware. Be right. careful what you click on. A lot of just careful thoughts on things. Now they do target users, especially for banking and things like that. They usually send to, you know, phishing emails, phishing texts. Those are more your attack vectors that home users see the most of. Now, the other part I mentioned about uh, external access and getting ransomware that way, there was a assault on a lot of the QNAP because of a flaw of them. Well, do you call backend credentials a flaw with QNAP or just a bad design? Bad design. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So they had um they had some QNAP store attack, but then there was a similar attack against Synology, but Synology was credential stuffing. So if you had your Synology publicly accessible, um, they were just randomly trying all the passwords on it. And because some people don't use strong passwords, those are a couple of times where they were uh, attacking and using them. The, the QNAP ones, I believe they would ransomware. Uh, the Synology ones, they would turn into a botnet, but that's what they were doing then later they could do something like ransomware. And the right. third one is uh, two years ago. Now there was a pretty big flaw found in one of the implementations. I don't remember if it was Nextcloud's flaw or if it was a flaw in PHP. Um, one, the flaw in was attacking specifically Nextcloud servers and you had to get everything patched, whether it was the PHP or at fault or Nextcloud at fault, the results the same of they would take over and leave a ransom note for, uh, you there so obviously your big threat services do you have anything publicly exposed then your right. internal threat service did you click on something to possibly detonate the ransomware on there um and just be count being very careful so yeah um oh and for people uh, this is a fair question people ask like the the unified dream machines offer some threat protection in there those are about useless they are matter of fact um i, I tweeted i laughed there was a register article so the UDM Pro was was getting bad updates for six months and nobody noticed. It was not getting any threat intelligent updates. So it was actually six months behind before someone says, hey, these files are really old on here. Oh boy. Um, the being able to, when everything's encrypted, detecting threats at your firewall is hard. Uh, it, it may have a list of sites and me and Jay, we both, have, we were talking last night, we'll be doing some future videos on companies working on ways to detect, you know, IP addresses and uh, creating yeah. lists by another company. But the problem is they're reactive, not proactive. The reason we know something's bad is because something bad was happening at that IP address. Second, if it's encrypted, it usually goes unnoticed for a very long time. So the firewall is to me, if you're looking at your threat surface and or where you want to put your uh, defense in depth, you probably want to take and put all the defense on the endpoint. And if you have some budget and time left over, it's better than nothing to have it on a firewall. But it's even though the firewall is the part touching the Internet, the browser is the part that touches the Internet where most of the threats are occurring here in 2021. So, right, yeah, that's it, it's it's not that good of it. And do not. Think of it as a substitute for endpoint protection. Don't go, oh, the firewall will stop those threats. I don't need to worry about endpoint. It's better to put everything on the endpoint and then, oh, cool. Also, the firewall, if it has the IP, if it recognizes an attack, if the attack wasn't encrypted and it could decrypt uh, what was going on, it would block it. If, 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 if. And that's yeah. a lot of ifs. <laughs> Reminds me of the Windows XP days when Service Pack 2 came out and everyone got that firewall and they're like, yes, I'm secure now while they're clicking allow, 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 allow on everything that comes up, um, which pretty much defeats the entire point of having a firewall. Um, another thing I wanted to mention, too, is that when it comes to backups, please don't have your backup target mounted all the time. Oh, because yeah. You know, like when that malware hits your machine, some of it will target your backup first before you actually know there's a problem. And if it has access to your shadow copies, you could bet it's going after your shadow copies. So you should have your backup source mounted only when it's actually doing a backup. 
because you know malware can't get to something that it doesn't have access to that's not mounted. So please don't keep your external, I mean, external hard drives aren't backup anyway. Don't keep those attached all the time. Don't keep like your network mount to your backup NAS or whatever mounted all the time. Just, you know, have it initiate that connection when it's backing up and then drop the connection when it's done. You don't want that all, always mounted because that's what some of these malware, um, you know, that's what they're hoping for. Yep. Yeah. So that that's that part of that, you know, keeping things separated and keeping the uh, backup, not even having the same credentials as whatever you're logging in the computer. Uh, so obviously yep. if they compromise your computer, there's a risk they compromise your credentials. And if those credentials happen to match the credentials of your backup system, then there's a problem. And people assume, because, oh, it's just my home lab. And I, I do not agree with this, but they will just start using the same password everywhere. I have, even at home, I don't have the same password for my computer as I have for my NAS, as I have for my Synology, yeah. as, as I have for anything, because password generators are easy. So I have gibberish for every password. It's, it's just better that way. <laughs> it's, yep. And two-factor and all that other stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do, and you should do all of them. I mean, I understand it's going to make things inconvenient, but that's the point. The more you make it inconvenient for yourself, it's also inconvenient for other people trying to get in too. So, you know, that's yep. how it goes. All right. So hopefully that helps cover that. There's not a uh, turnkey guarantee solution, but there's at least mitigations and defense you can put on there. Yep. How can we know in advance when you will be live streaming? I can't find scheduling on a website. Um, me and Jay work on this because life happens. And because we both work in the industry, we we end up with priorities being sometimes addressing issues we're dealing with at work. Uh, so this is what makes it a little bit more challenging than setting it, but we're getting closer. Uh, we think we settled on with the exception of today, um, yeah. settled on doing it at 11 o'clock on Wednesdays, 11 yeah. Eastern time. Uh, we just haven't been brave enough to publish it because once you publish it, it feels like you, it feels like there's a lot of seriousness going on there. <laughs> yeah, it does. And I, you know, we would have been, like Tom said, on today at that time. But the thing is, you know, today's the first day of school where I'm at in my area. So, of course, the kids had a half day today around 11 o'clock is exactly when I had to go to, to pick them up. So um, that's not going to be the case going forward. I, I think we can say 11 a.m. Eastern time Wednesdays. Absolutely. Of course, there could be another half day of school sometime later on this year. So we'll, you know, maybe let you guys know on Twitter or put it somewhere where you guys can see it. If that particular day we're not going to be able to make it or maybe even the episode before that, we'll let you know. We'll let you know somehow. We'll send a carrier pigeon if we have to. But I think yeah. 11 a.m. Eastern. Um, I'm at a point in my career right now where I think I can um, confidently say that that I'm ready to uh, you know, draw that line in the sand. Yeah. So we should be able to do that. And uh, if you look and I did a slightly clickbaity video, should I sell my business or option B? And uh, I discussed some of the changes I made here to allow myself a little bit more content time. So we're, we're working really solidly on this 11 o'clock on Eastern yeah. time with the exception of today. <laughs> and there's going to be a video that I'm going to be making. It might be as soon as next week. It might be a week after that where I'm going to talk about my business and how, and the reason why I think I'm going to be able to schedule this um, in advance with more confidence. So I'm not ready to say anything right now, but I will be yeah. making a video on that um, in the very near future. All right. And now that's, that's those the questions we had. I did see, you know, this was technically something someone sent us and it came up again in a live chat and it's about Unraid. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen people comment on that and there's a few comments and videos. Why don't you do videos on it? I just don't because I don't use it. Um, right. I really don't feel that from talking to people that do use Unraid, it scales to the larger size clients we have. So it's not a client solution. It seems to be an excellent home user solution. So if you want to use it, I, I can't tell you any reason not to use it, but from a scalability standpoint and a manageability standpoint, it doesn't seem to have that same scalability. In, in, for example, if you were following me at all on Twitter today, I was posting about 84 uh, 18 terabyte hard drives that we're building for a project. Some of the projects we do here at Lawrence Systems are large projects for our clients, and we are then using the things we talk about. This is the back and forth with my videos. Because we're not using it, and I don't plan on sitting down and learning the Unraid platform, um, it's not me saying not to use it. It's more about me saying I just don't use it. So right. I have nothing against it. If you'd like to use it, uh, there's a couple 
I want to say the name is Space Invader One. He's got a bunch of videos on on Raid. He's got a YouTube channel called Space. I think it's called Space Invader One. Someone can correct me in the comments on that. If that's the case, that's awesome because Space Invaders are amazing. One of my favorite. Yeah, I I, I, I grew (laughs) up on Space Invaders, so that's why. Yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a solid system um, for people that like it. The I know Wendell's used it a couple times, and um, I've seen a lot of people talk about it. It it doesn't necessarily scratch our itches, so to speak. You know. Yeah, that's Um, exactly right. Yeah, it doesn't Um, do anything so compelling that Synology or TrueNAS that if you're, if I have all these different problems, the, the problems are usually in storage world solved by Synologies or solved by TrueNAS or some combination of them. I don't, I'm not finding things falling outside of there that I require that. Also TrueNAS scale for those of you that go in, but on Raid has Docker. Um, yes, I know. And so does TrueNAS scale, which is actually what I'm waiting on. It's the familiar environment of TrueNAS. It's the familiar environment of VM, of ZFS. And uh, it's also the familiar environment of Debian all rolled into one package. So right. that's going to be for the Docker solution for those of you that need it, which I don't use a lot of Docker, but I know there's a demand for it. That's where I'm going for there instead of on RAID. Yeah, I think the biggest problem with creating content is time because if you if you saw my um, my backlog and how deep it was about all the things that I want to go over, you'd be like, how are you ever going to get through that? Because there's so many things that I want to check out. So um, obviously the things that I'm using, I'm already using. It's super easy for me to make a video about it because I'm already using it. And then every now and then I'll pick something from the backlog that I really don't know about and I'll just learn about it. And then I'll make videos about it. Um, part of the problem on my end is that sometimes the editing process and all this takes a very long time. So I'm actually in the process of looking at um, a couple of volunteers to kind of help me out, to kind of free me up a little bit, which is probably going to help me out with this. But um, yeah, like like Tom said, I'm going to cater to the things that I know and then I use. And then if something crosses my radar, it has to get me a certain level of excited before I'm like, oh, my God, I got to do a video about that yeah. right now. Like that, like zero tier, when Tom mentioned that to me the first time. I'm like, that's brilliant. I want to do a video about that. And then two years later, I did a video about that. <laughs> so that's kind of how it goes sometimes. We we have a lot to a lot of catching up to do. But as soon as I get the production um faster, then I'll be able to turn around the videos faster and it won't be so much of a problem. Yeah. The um other thing too is the uh, we like hearing the feedback from you. We just kind of go back to some of this because that's what helps us produce some of the next episodes. Yep. You just kind of remind me, Jay, um, we probably should do one talking about tail scale or uh, yep. zero tier. They're good things to talk about. There's a lot of use cases in the home lab forum. Folks. So um, what well, does the audience think of that? We got a bunch of people here. So comment on some of the things. This is a good opportunity because we're just free forming it here now. We went through all the questions. One, throw some questions at us. Two, throw suggestions at us. And uh, we absolutely were always looking. We have. It, don't worry if you have none. We're okay with that. We will come up with ideas. We have so many more things to talk about. <laughs> oh, yeah, we absolutely do. Another thing I would say, too, is if you're going to write a suggestion in, um, I would recommend instead of saying you should try out X. I would say instead, you should try out X because, and then yeah. give us a few bullet points. I mean, don't send us a wall of text or anything like that. Um, but just give us some reasons that might make us excited to try it out, right? So it does Y, it does Z, it does all these things. Yeah. This is why I like it. And then that would probably get my attention more than you should try X because at least I know what it is that makes it stand out from other th- other things. And then I'll get excited possibly. And, oh yeah, I definitely want to, I have a use case for that. Or I know exactly the right uh, spin on a video where that could fit in and then it happens. So that would really help out too. Yeah. So that's um, definitely important that you give us a little context of why we should be excited about it. Uh, someone asked about buying a used NAS. Uh, you actually can get some pretty good deals. If you go to eBay and you type in true NAS or free NAS in eBay, you'll come up with a couple companies, including Unix surplus. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have some cheap deals on used NAS. They can be pretty good. And the nice thing is because you typed in those search terms, they actually will tell you they've put together a machine with known good hardware for true NAS. You can also type in probably Unraid or one of the other uh NAS platforms you're using. So yes, you can find some good deals on eBay for a used NAS with a lot of drives mm-hmm. in it. Um, and Unix surplus, we have, I, I never, I not a direct endorsement, but we have had good experiences with them uh, for the couple things that we bought from Unix surplus. They seem like nice people when we talk to them, but they're not a sponsor or any other affiliate. They're just someone we bought some hardware from because they happen to have yep. something I needed. Uh, and my friend bought a rather large for you uh, NAS server for a project he had and he liked it. So <laughs> 
Well, there you go. There's all kinds of options too. And sometimes you can even go on your local classifieds or wherever it is you find out about local sales and things like that. And if, you know, it's unfortunate when a business goes under, obviously, but sometimes if there's like a liquidation of a building and they had servers in there, sometimes they're giving those away for really, really low prices because they're like, eh, get them out of here. They're too big. They're too heavy. We don't want them here. We don't even want to lift them. Just just someone please come grab them. And I've seen that happen where I'm just, you know, oh, servers, yay, um, desktops and things. I mean, just keep your eyes peeled in local um, groups and things like that. Yeah. You'd be surprised. Sometimes you'll find, and we actually have a couple of times picked up some uh, cheap brand new uh, racks that we got. They had sides and everything. They were still wrapped in, they were already assembled, wrapped in plastic in a warehouse. They were on Craigslist and on Facebook oh, yeah. Marketplace. Yeah. And we were like, let's, and they, they said they've never been installed. They were brand new. It was some warehouse. They, it was funny. They, I guess how they got there, the story was we bought this building. We don't need these. They were here wrapped in plastic, just like this. So they sold them for like 500 bucks a piece, which they were like two or $3,000 flip trip, like really nice racks. So um, sometimes you can find some killer deals like that. I walked into a computer store locally here and bought some parts and they tried to give me a rack for free. Um, It was humongous. It was absolutely beautiful too. It wasn't just a standard rack. It was like enclosed plexiglass with like this really bright neon blue outline. I mean, it looked like something that I would love to have in the background here, but then it's like, yeah, that's not coming down my stairs. That's way too big. I'm like, darn it. But um, you know, you get lucky about things like that. Sometimes just keep your eyes peeled, just have conversations with people. You never know what you might find. Yep. So I think that covers all the questions and stuff. That's uh. We reached it. We've uh, wrapped up another podcast. We've done 22 of these. That blows my mind. It's time flies when we're having fun. It seems like just yesterday when we started this too. I know. I think it might have been cold out when we started. 22 weeks ago was this, that was the beginning. It's really hot now, so it's well, we'll keep this going all the way till next winter. Yeah, we have like three seasons of cold in Michigan, so it's very possible that was the case. Yep. <laughs> well. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. And thank you for all of those who filled out the contact form and feel free to go out there and let us know what we should be excited about. Or if you want to have a question and we plan to every so many episodes, I don't know if it's going to take another 22 episodes, but every so many episodes we will do some Q and a we're always constantly rethinking how to do the structure. If the questions come in any fast enough stream, we will actually do Q and a in each one of them. At least if the questions will consolidate a couple of them, that they're uh, solid questions. We think the audience, wanted like to dive into absolutely it's mm-hmm. on our roadmap as well so yeah all right well thank all you right. everyone for joining us and thank you for Linode for sponsoring us and letting us download this and i will interact and engage with everyone next time in the meantime you can find me and jay on the forums on the twitters and uh on the homelapshow.com you can that's where you can yep. view that form and contact us all right thanks thank you <laughs>